Genesis 25. And the key phrase, as you may recall from Sunday, Genesis 23, was bury your dead. I wasn't sure how that was going to go down, no pun intended. Bury your dead, but we talked about how it's not just a physical thing, it's spiritual, it's emotional. Bury the things of the past, bury the things that have died, and we tend to drag a lot of dead things along with us. The old man, the old woman, the dead acts of the past, the successes and failures, all of that. It's dead, man, let it go, bury it. It's time to move on, to press on. As Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Great verses to memorize, great verses for followers of Jesus to live by. We press on, we're going forward. There is a kingdom out ahead of us and we're getting there soon. And that's what Abraham did. He buried his dead. In his case, his dead was Sarah. And he buried her there in the cave, uh, Marat Hamakpalah, the, the caves of Machpelah, the double cave. And two times, Abraham said during the chapter, I need to bury my dead out of my sight. Not right there in front of me, not continually with me, but we're done. We've done this. Now we're moving forward. And of course, The patriarch does after the burial of his beloved. He presses on. Chapter 24 is the next thing that follows. And we know historically, and with beautiful biblical topology, Abraham sent the servant to fetch the bride for his only son. Now keep that in mind because it will come back into play in just a couple of minutes here. But tonight, as we pick up in chapter 25, we go back to the cave of Machpelah, the double cave for Abraham himself is buried there. But before that, verse one, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah and she bore to him Zimran and Yokshan and Medan and Midian and Yishbak and Shua. And I just wanna point out to you that Shua is actually relative to the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. Right, I know, someone's saying, wait a minute, what about Peter? I mean, he slept on his watch. (laughs) Pretty short, be able to do that. That's just silly. Verse three, continuing on, Yokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Letushim and Leumim, and I remind you, students of Hebrew, anytime you see the aim at the end of a word, it tends to mean it's plural. So Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim speaks not of individuals but entire people groups. And verse four says that the sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephra and Hanoch and Abidah and Eldea, and these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, plural, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied, and he was gathered to his people. And then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, they buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Chet, 
where Abraham, or there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, and it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. I want you to note that the setting of the death of Abraham is life. I find it interesting that in his death and his burial and this description, the chapter surrounds this with life, with this record of the sons and families and even nations emerging from the patriarch exactly as El Shaddai had promised. God said back in Genesis 17, four, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Many nations that would come, not just the nation of Israel, but many nations were gonna come from Abraham, and so we see all of these sons that Keturah bore to him, they would all be fathers of nations. And then, of course, this is gonna be followed, picking up in verse 12, with the seventh toldot and the eighth toldot in Genesis. The toldot of Ishmael, what became of Ishmael and his people, and then what became of Isaac and his sons. So the seventh and eighth toldots. Ishmael's toldot, picking up in verse 12, is first, followed then by Isaac's toldot. And that's not because Ishmael was born first, though he was. You know that Isaac is still viewed as God's one and only son, or Abraham's one and only son. Truly, he has the birthright of the firstborn. Isaac does not Ishmael. But Ishmael's toldot is first. Why? Why do we read that one followed then by Isaac's? Why not put Isaac's toldot in first position? And Derek Kidner points out, and listen closely to this. This actually is one quote that spun me around and got me thinking about some other things. Some of it we won't even get to till Sunday. Kidner said, true to pattern, those that were to play little or no part in the history of salvation make their bow first to leave the chief actors now in possession. And you, you do see this pattern. Oftentimes, God will move through as he did with the told out of Cain. Let's deal with Cain's stuff and move him along. Then we need to get to Abel because that's where we're really dealing with what I'm doing going forward. So we get the told out of Ishmael. We get his descendants. And then God moves on from it because Ishmael is not a player. And what I realize in thinking this through is that this book, the Bible beginning to end, it's the revelation of the glory of God as seen in the salvation of creation. That that's the line that's running through this is salvation, but it's salvation to his glory. It's salvation for the purpose of, of glorifying and honoring God as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. He said, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is a profoundly powerful statement. That Paul says the point of our salvation is the glorification of God for all to earn or to learn, not earn, but to learn, and that is both human and heavenly beings. That this is the school of the heavenly is watching the church 
and learning in what God is doing in and through the church, the salvation of people who shouldn't ought to be saved, that the heavenly beings and rulers and authorities are learning about grace, learning about the glory of God. And so while Ishmael is named and, and his sons will be discussed, Isaac Isaac is the deal. Isaac is now this continual line of salvation. The line of salvation bringing glorification to God that runs through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, all the way down the line ultimately to Jesus in what I've called the 12th toldot. Remember there are 11 toldots in Genesis, but there's a 12th, Matthew chapter one, verse one, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So here's what I'm saying. And I know I jumped in quick this, this evening. Multiple nations would come through Abraham. But as Paul writes, there is only one nation Romans 9, 5, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever, amen. One nation, through which comes salvation to the glorification of God, the significance of Israel. Understand, it's not because Israel is so special. Any more than it's because the church is so special that we're involved in what we're doing today. No, it is through this nation. What makes Israel so unique, so special, and so chosen is the fact that this is the nation through whom comes Jesus. God had to make that choice. Keep that in mind. I want you to consider a few things here in the satisfied end of the remarkable life of Abraham, friend of God. If you look back in verse one, just a couple things kind of to clean up and, and make note of in these first 11 verses. First note that Abraham took another wife. Another wife. But if you read ahead and go to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, you'll note that this wife named Keturah here in 1 Chronicles is called his concubine. Well, is she his wife or is she his concubine? And as a matter of fact, if you look down in verse six, you'll see to the sons of his concubines, plural, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. So Abraham had wives and concubines? All we've read about is we've read about Hagar, who we know that Sarah uh, gave to her husband to become a wife. In fact, Genesis 16, verse three, after Abraham had or Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. So Hagar's a wife, right? And there's Sarah, his wife. And now Keturah, verse one of chapter 25, Abraham took another wife. So he has three wives. Where, where are these concubines? Who are these concubines? Listen, both Hagar and Keturah are the concubines. There are no others. There are these two. Sarah's the wife, Hagar and Keturah are the concubines. You might say, yeah, but Rick, the Bible says that they're his wives. Yeah, and his concubines. And here's the deal. A concubine can either be defined as cohabitation in a marriage or social status in a household below that of a wife. 
Sarah is the wife. Hagar and Keturah, while wives, are at the status level of concubines. They are not in the same place as Sarah. He loves Keturah. I assume Abraham loved Hagar. I, I don't really know, but they're concubines, a step down from Sarah, the wife. Neither of these two women, Hagar and Keturah, shared the positional marital status of Sarah. She alone was the love of Abraham's life. And Sarah alone bore the covenant child. Verse five tells us, now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, gave it all to his son. And it's not that the other sons weren't valued to him. It doesn't mean that he didn't care for them or love them. But there's only one heir to the promise. There was only one inheritor of the covenant. And remember, Remember this, that Abraham's only son, whom he loves, Isaac, exemplifies another only son. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands, speaking, of course, of Jesus. Hebrews 1, verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. Again, that's Jesus. But you know what's amazing about Jesus? As the only son, the sole inheritor who has been given all things into his hands, in a stunning turn of events, Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we come into, unlike Abraham's other children, other sons, Isaac got it all. They got gifts and were sent away. Isaac got it all. But unlike that scenario, where Jesus has it all, as we come into sonship, daughtership of the Lord, we also come into a shared inheritance with the Son. That's mind-blowing. That's remarkable that God is doing that. What Abraham couldn't do, literally in sharing the birthright of Isaac, God does in sharing the birthright of Jesus, the inheritance, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Colossians chapter one, verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the sons of light. We're not given gifts and sent away to the east. No, we are co-inheritors with Jesus himself. But listen, and think this through with me, in giving all that he had to Isaac, you could say Abraham gave all that he had to Jesus. Because Jesus would be in that line. So as he gave to Isaac, we go to Jacob and straight on down the line, ultimately Jesus in that line of inheritance. I wonder how many people at the end of their lives will wish they had given just a little bit more to Jesus. I wish I had just given a little more to the only begotten son. Like that scene at the end of Schindler's List, if you've seen it, where Arthur Schindler is just weeping, wishing he had just done a little more. Saved so many, countless lives of so many Jewish people from the Holocaust. But man, it, it, this ring, this ring, he said, could have been one more Jew. This car could have been five more Jews. And he's just weeping. I wish I had done more. And I really wonder how many people 
standing before the sun will say, why didn't I do more? I wish I had given him a little bit more. It's worth considering how much of our resources, great or small, we will offer to Jesus. Abraham gave it all to the son Isaac. God gave it all to his son Jesus, who then shares with us how much will we offer to the Lord. And it has nothing to do with how much you think you have to give. Jesus was sitting there at the temple treasury, Luke chapter 21, verse one. And he was watching the rich put their gifts into the treasury. So if you ever wonder if God watches you give, Jesus is watching them as they're coming, they're dropping in there, you know, making big show, dropping in their large amounts, and oh, look at how good I am. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they put in out of their surplus into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. How much of myself am I gonna give to the son? How much am I willing? Listen, something's got to happen in our lives because something's gonna happen to this world something of of higher value than any amount of wealth or resource that we could possibly ever amass here on the planet in terms of our personal net worth. I'm not talking about buying your way into the presidency. A kingdom is coming. A kingdom is coming. Listen again. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Yokshan and Medan and Midian and Yishbak and Shua. All these kids, all these names, continues on down. I read the other names to you already, that these are nations who come from these sons and all of these nations would set up to the south and to the east of Israel to this day, encompassing the, or encompassing the entire Syro-Arabian desert and peninsula. That whole region of Arabs. And these are all Arabs coming out of the line of Abraham. Verse three, again records the sons of Dedan as nation groups, as I pointed out a moment ago, the Asherim, the Letushim, and the Leumim are all three nations, as are all of these would be heads of nations. But there's more intriguing things afoot, something coming here, a kingdom is coming. A kingdom is coming, and I keep coming back to this because I gotta be honest with you, for me, it's been a, I told the staff this morning, a paradigm shift, a big paradigm shift in how I'm viewing viewing life. And I guess the shift started for me 20 years ago, but it's really laid in about the last year and a half, maybe two years, where I found myself rethinking what it is I'm doing here what it is our lives are even about. And what I keep hearing again and again is a kingdom is coming. Those of you who are retired and you thought your life was behind you, you, no, that was all just preparation and you're not quite prepared because you're still here. A kingdom is coming that we are not living for now, we are living for then. That's the great reality. That's what's ahead of us. That's what this life is preparing us for. And you may be someone who comes along and gives your life to Jesus at the very end and then you die. That's why you were here. But I didn't do anything. You were born again. 
That's why you are here. Someone else who goes on mission and goes all over the world preaching the gospel and people are getting born again right and left. That's why he was here. That's why she was here. But the point is getting that focus on Jesus and once we have it, realizing, man, bury the dead, move on. Because the kingdom is coming. And God is so good to remind us and he does again and again and again And all of this is coming to this point. Watch this. Chapter 22, a father offers up his son. Now, think with the typology of all of this. Chapter 22, a father offers his son. Chapter 23, Sarah, mother of Israel, dies. Chapter 24, the father sends the servant out to fetch the bride for the son, and then the son reappears to receive his bride. You all are following what I'm talking about, right? Now in chapter 25, true to type, Father Abraham marries Keturah. Keturah, whose name means incense. But it's not just incense, it's literally fragrance through burning. That seems like a strange name. What it describes is incense offered on an altar. So it's only sweet once it burns. Once it goes over the fire and then the smoke of the incense rises and becomes a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what Keturah's name means. Sarah is dead, but now Keturah continues in the role of, note she's called wife of Abraham. So now Keturah continues as the wife and could be a picture of Israel I know Sarah's the mother of Israel, but now Keturah comes along and steps into this position, and her name means fragrance through burning. Think about this. It may fit the picture in terms of Israel going through fires of tribulation to become a sweet aroma for the Lord, which happens when? After the servant went and got the bride and brought the bride to the son. After the marriage of the bride and the son, the very next thing on the agenda is Keturah comes into the picture, incense through burning. So the son receives the bride up into heaven as in the rapture of the church, and now what happens on earth? Tribulation begins. Israel going through tribulation, a time of great trial and difficulty, like fires burning, and through that, the remnant of Israel that survives would be like a sweet Aroma having gone through the fire, a fragrant incense upon the altar. But don't stop there. They have a firstborn of Keturah and Abraham named Zimran. And Zimran, his name means musician. But the root word of Zimran is Zamar, which means sing praise. Sing praise. What happens after the fires of tribulation and the remnant of Israel becomes a sweet incense before the Lord? Isaiah chapter 12, verse four. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things and let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 42, verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. 
You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. Why? Because the kingdom is here. And so the picture in type continues on. Israel, like sweet incense through the fire, singing songs of praise now as they come into the kingdom promised by God. And they come in for now a thousand years of peace and prosperity and rest and righteousness. But then Yokshan is born. Yokshan, whose name means to capture or entangle, or it can mean tempter. And Midan is born. His name means contention. Midian is born. His name means strife. A tempter bringing contention and strife. Does that fit the picture? Yishbak comes on the scene. He's born, and his name means released, and Shua means sunken down from the pit. Put it together. At the end of the sweet, song-filled, praiseworthy millennial kingdom as Israel has come through fires of tribulation, but now that remnant is a sweet fragrance and songs of praise are sung. At the end of this kingdom, the tempter will be released from his sunken down pit, bringing contention and strife. And we see this trail all the way through from the very sacrifice of Jesus to the end of the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter one, I'll just read it to you. Actually, chapter 20, verse one. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He shut it, he sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. And I kind of wish the verse would stop right there because that sounds good. No more deception, he's done with, but the verse continues until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Revelation 20, verse seven, when the thousand years are released, Satan will be released from his prison. Yishbak meaning released. Shua from the pit, the sunken down place. He'll be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up in the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's an amazing truth that God reveals to us that this old snake in the grass, this old snaring and trapping tempter is released now from the pit at the end of the kingdom age. Why? You Bible students know why. To prove once and for all eternity that even under the perfect rule and righteous reign of Jesus, mankind still has a choice. All those born in the years of the kingdom still have a choice. It proves once and for all rebellion, even in righteousness, rebellion can still emerge from the heart of man by the sin nature that is in all 
And finally, it proves beyond the shadow of a doubt, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so it seems here, as we begin chapter 25, the end of Abraham's life, that the chapter continues to hint about these things at the very end of the world as we know it. Genesis 22 through Genesis 25 is an amazing picture nonstop from Jesus on the cross to the end of the kingdom. Wow. I love the word of God because it never ceases to amaze me. You might say, but, but what about after the kingdom rebellion? What, what about then? Well, Revelation 21, verse one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's an amazing picture. Verse 12. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, and he's the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Abdil, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names by their villages, by their camps, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled or dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt as one goes down toward Assyria or goes toward Assyria. And he settled in defiance of all his relatives. So back up again in verse 12, this is the seventh toldot, the what became of Ishmael. Verses 13 through 16, naming all, again, all of these nations, all of these nation states and tribes and names. If you look back at Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, do you remember what Abraham said to God at that time? God said, you're gonna bear a son. You're gonna have a son with Sarah. And Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Ishtak. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly, he shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Well, here are those 12 princes in verses 13, 14, and 15. The 12 princes born from Ishmael of the line of Ishmael. And so what we see here is along with Abraham's wife's sons, the sons of Keturah, the sons of Ishmael, and also we're gonna see a son of Isaac named Esau. All the Arabic peoples today draw their lineage from these peoples. Now what's interesting, if you look at verse 16, it says that these are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names by their villages, by their camps, 12 princes according to their tribes. 
Names indicates people groups, villages, indicates places where they would settle. Camps speaks of geographical power. Princes speaks of geopolitical power. And then tribes speak of nations. And it's an interesting picture of really the tribal format of Arabs even to this day. See, we look at the Middle East and and we see Iraq and we see Syria and we see Jordan and we see Lebanon. That's not the tribal system. And in fact, those are imposed borders. France and Great Britain after World War I imposed those borders on the Middle East. Those are not the borders of the Middle East, although you know nation states have had to accept them, but the Arab nations today have a completely different structure that is deeply rooted in Ishmael and Esau and the sons of Keturah. And specifically, when you look at the names, villages, camps, princes, tribes, of verse 16, this speaks of a different kind of structure, a way that is considered or thought in Arabic thought that has a very old memory in the Middle East. France and Great Britain may have redrawn the lines, but it didn't change the mentality of the Arab people who trace their lineage back to this. Now, you can take the names Nebaiot and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, and Mishma and Duma and Massa, Hadad, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. And, and you can look at their meanings. And I tried to do this a little bit. I've, I've heard that you can take the meaning of their names and it actually tells the story of Islam, which is interesting. I couldn't make it work. But if you're into that and you wanna do a study, please do that, write it out and, and bring it to me as soon as possible. It didn't really matter to me because, again, the line, the descendants of Ishmael are not the descendants of the line of salvation. And they're mentioned because God said, Abraham, for your sake, I will bless Ishmael. I'm gonna bless him because you said, oh, that Ishmael might live, so I'll bless him. It's gonna be a problem for you. It's gonna be conflict, but I'm gonna bless Ishmael. So God does, but it's been nothing really but problems in the Middle East ever since. I want you to notice more closely, verse 17, that this says these are the years of the life of Ishmael. Notice it doesn't say these are the days of the years. It just says these are the years. And Ishmael lived to be 137 years. Abraham was 175. Ishmael didn't live as long as his father. He breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people. It says they, that is the people of Ishmael, settled from Havilah to Shur. But down at the end of the chapter, it says he settled in defiance of all his relatives. Now, two things I want you to note about Ishmael here real quick before we move on. First off, it says that he was gathered to his people. Ishmael was gathered to his people. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It's a spiritual indicator. Listen, folks, it is a spiritual indicator of the afterlife. This is a phrase, gathered to his people, may indicate, and this may surprise some of us, that Ishmael died a man of faith. That he learned faith from his father, Abraham. And that he died in faith because Ishmael was gathered to his people. This phrase is only used in the Bible of Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, Moses, and Ishmael. That's quite a company. So to, be, to die and be gathered to his people may imply uh, where Ishmael went, may give us a sense of that. At least it speaks of the continued existence after death. And if it is speaking of the family of Ishmael, if, if the people, if Ishmael's people ultimately draws him back to Abraham, then Ishmael's there. But remember this, Ishmael was not a Muslim. Islam didn't come along until 600 years after Christ, over 2,000 years after Ishmael. So he's not Islamic, he's Arabic. The father of the Arabic people. So it's very likely Ishmael was gathered to the family of the people of faith that ultimately this is a life saved. It'd be fascinating to find that out. But verse 18 nonetheless ends in tragedy. Note that he settled in defiance of all his relatives. Defiance sounds bad enough, but the phrase settled is nafal, and it literally means to collapse, to fall down. That what we read there is that he collapsed in defiance of his relatives. He fell down in defiance of his relatives. It seems to indicate that Ishmael, at 137 years, collapsed hostile to his family, perhaps separated from, off on his own, in defiance. Remember, God said he'll be a wild donkey of a man and he will always be in fighting with his brothers. So we get a picture here of old Ishmael collapsing in defiance, at least of his family. Can a curmudgeonly cantankerous old codger still be saved? <laughs> Pretty sure about that, aren't you? Can that happen? Can Ishmael collapse in defiance and still be gathered to his people? I would agree, because grace is big. Now, I would say to all of us, that's not really something to aspire to. I'm gonna prove that I can be as cantankerous as possible and die in conflict and still go right to the pearly gates. What's interesting is the fruit of the Spirit does not include irritability, crankiness, aloofness, or opposition. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Paul says, against such things there is no law, Galatians 5, 28 and 29. Because love is the fulfillment of the law, there's no law where the fruit of the Spirit is because the, the law has been fulfilled because the fruit of the Spirit speaks of, of love. And the point I'm making here is I can't go on record as saying a grizzled old grump will be saved. Again, I think grace is big. Grace can save the grump. But the reality is that, can he be saved? Yeah. Will he be saved? I don't know. Because the outer man reveals the inner heart. And how I am reveals where I am. I think about this a lot, probably too much these days, but as we age, we have a choice. 
we have a decision to make. Our hearts can either soften or they can go hard. The eyes can either shine with hope or they can dim with hostility. The demeanor can be sweet or it can be sour. But we know that God's will, God's desire for every follower is that we would be sanctified in our sojourn, that we would get sweeter with age, not more sour. That while it's fun to laugh about a curmudgeonly old crank, that is not the call of God on the follower of Jesus. That is not the life of the sojourner. Proverbs 16:31 says, "A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness." I'm working on my crown. Literally, the top's just about gone. I'm working on the crown. I want the gray crown. Because listen, a gray head is a crown of glory. It's found in the way of righteousness. That wisdom and sweetness and gentleness and a twinkle in the eye laid in life is the result of one who has spent time with Jesus. The more I'm with Jesus, the sweeter I'm gonna be. Now what's interesting is physiologically speaking, that's not always the case. Physiologically speaking, the older we get, the more we have aches and pains. The more we have, physiologically speaking, to be grumpy about. And that's where the spirit man, the spirit woman, has got to win the fight. That's where the spirit takes over. The Proverbs 16.32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit better than he who captures a city. Oh, may our spirits be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, that we walk with Jesus and we grow sweeter and sweeter because really we have two options at the end of, the li- of our lives. It'll either be collapse or it'll be Christ. Collapse in grumpiness or be with Christ in sweetness. And notice Abraham, just in contrast to the collapse of the defiance of Ishmael, Abraham, verse eight, breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, like a ripe piece of fruit, sweet, tasty, fruit of the Spirit. An old man and satisfied, and you can just mark through with life. Man, it's frustrating sometimes the way even translators will read into Scripture. The words with life are not there. It's not that Abraham was satisfied with life. Yeah, I had it pretty good. No, he was satisfied, period. This describes a man at peace, peace with God, satisfied, a ripe old age, and he was gathered to his people. And the only way that we're gonna age well and die satisfied is by walking with Jesus. Remember John 8, 56, where Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What made Abraham glad? It's what made his life ripe. But this is it for Ishmael. It's all we get, and we move on. Collapsing in defiance of his family, and ultimately, Ishmael will not be a player in the history of the salvation of humanity. Let me ask you, will you be? Will we be listed among the players in the line of salvation? That's a place to, to be. I mean, to be known for. When we, when we reach heaven, 
or when we're called up to Jesus, to actually be among those who we were players in salvation, and not just our own. We were players in the salvation of other people. See, Ishmael really can't claim that. His line is now over, over and out in defiance. The line of Isaac, however, here continues. Verse 19, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. The toldote, this is the eighth toldote of Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, <laughs> Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife, Isaac and Rebekah. In this eighth toldote, the what became of Isaac's family. Now, what's interesting to me is we get far less detail about Isaac than we do of either Abraham or Jacob. Isaac's in the middle, he's the bridge. He, he portrays, he typifies the son, but as a person in the narrative and in the story here, we don't get a whole lot about Isaac, just a little bit, a couple of stories. What's interesting is we will find that Isaac exceeds his father's lifespan by five years. Isaac's gonna live to 180 as compared to Abraham's 175. Genesis 36, 38 tells us. But Isaac takes after his father in several ways, some good, not so great, some not so great. It's kind of a like father-like son. And in verse 21, it's interesting, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Well, wait, that was Abraham and Sarah, wasn't it? Same story. And now like father-like son, now Rebecca can't have a child. Now Rebecca's barren. So Isaac takes it to the Lord, prays, and it says the Lord answered. Literally, the Lord was entreated of him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. It's important to note that because we see twice in this verse both Isaac prayed and Isaac entreated. Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord was entreated of him which speaks of some persistence. I like that about Isaac. Here, right at the beginning of the story of Isaac, as we start to pick up more, we know what happened on Mount Moriah, but now as we just get into Isaac's life, we see him persistently praying and not protesting. See, he could have. Lord, it wasn't bad enough that Mama Sarah was barren? which is kind of an ironic phrase, isn't it? Mama Sarah was barren? Wasn't it bad enough that my mom couldn't have kids? Oh yeah, she had me. But he's not protesting, he's not grumping, he's not sinking into self-pity, he seeks the Lord. Isaac prays. He didn't grumble, he got on his knees. I wonder, because I sometimes think about things like this, I wonder what would have happened if Isaac had prayed and Rebekah had just remained barren. Now, obviously, he's the covenant child. Who's gonna have a covenant child? I mean, this, this line has to continue. He knows that. If he's heard his father Abraham's stories of the covenant promises of God, he knows it's gotta continue on, so it's gonna happen. But what if it didn't? What if we just set aside belief, you know, the suspension of belief just for a second and say, what if the story stopped right here? Isaac prayed and prayed persistently. He prayed and she remained barren. And I know that that has happened. Maybe in your life, 
You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed for something and God has not answered you. Maybe you say, either a yes or a no, but just give me something. Even if you say no, well, then at least I know I'm answered, but I'm, I'm getting nothing who's been there. I've been praying, Lord. I've been asking. Nothing's changing. No answer. Still waiting, Lord. It's been like 20 minutes. I've been waiting two weeks. I've been praying for 10 years, Lord. Nothing's happening. Les was sharing about a friend of his who he began praying for 42 years ago and just discovered he was delivered, released, relieved from the very things that Les and others began praying for 42 years ago and just now. He's a life saved and released. So longevity of prayer is a thing, my friends. But, but what would have happened? Okay, if Isaac just prayed and prayed and prayed and Rebecca had remained barren and prayed and prayed and prayed, and what if he said, hey, Lord, Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Therefore, you gotta do something here, Lord. And the Lord didn't. I, I'm making a point here. It, it came up actually on Sunday. I was having lunch with a, a really sweet couple that I'm gonna be privileged to do their wedding this May. And we were talking about relationship and everything else. And, and the young man, he, he said, can I ask you a question that's unrelated to any of this? And I looked over and, and his, his fiance kind of rolled her eyes. Here we go. <laughs> and we got into this great discussion because his question was, the Bible says pray without ceasing. But why do we have to keep praying the same thing over and over and over and over? If God hears us, why do we keep praying? In fact, what's the point of prayer? And I just smiled. And I said, Prayer itself is not the issue. See, that, that's the problem I think a lot of times we have as followers is we think it's about the prayer, either the way I pray or the persistency of my prayer or how much I pray or what I pray. And if I just stay on it and we turn prayer into rubbing the magic rabbit's foot, that is not prayer, my friends. I think Augustine said it best. True, whole prayer is nothing but love. What would have happened if God had not answered the request of Isaac, at least not right away? And we don't know how long it took. Was it a half an hour? Was it several weeks? Was it a matter of years that Isaac kept persistently entreating of the Lord and finally Rebecca became pregnant? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. However long it took was a time of relationship that Isaac had with the Lord. And that is why we pray. We pray to be in communication and communion with God. It's all about the relationship. It's all about spending time in the presence of God. It's loving him. It's knowing that he loves me enough that he's gonna respond with his own absolute goodness in his own absolutely good time for what is absolutely best for me. I know this about him, so I'm just gonna hang with him. I'm gonna talk to him. And rather than getting again, wrapped around the axle because my prayers aren't being answered, just keep praying. Because with every prayer, you know what's happening? Your trust in the Lord increases. Your love for Jesus expands. Your sense of the presence of God in your life. You know what's funny about persistent prayer is after a while you start to forget what you started praying for in the first place. 
and you just find yourself praying. And I know this pleases the Father. And I tell this to anyone, so if you come up and ask me this in a year or two, I'm gonna tell you this. Anyone who says, I've been praying and praying and praying, and, and I'm not hearing anything, I say, wow, you must be special. God wants to spend all this time with you. Really, that's the point. That's the prayer. I love that what we see of Isaac here at the very beginning of this part of his story that he prays, first thing out of the gate, he's praying to the Lord, he's entreating of the Lord. And he's trusting him. Well, of course, in this case, Rebecca did conceive. But verse 22, it was a hard pregnancy. <laughs> the children struggled together within her. Those of you ladies who have had one child struggle in the womb, can you imagine two? I can't even imagine one. Struggled together within her and she said, if it is so, why then am I? And this way, if that's added in your scriptures, is not there. What she says is fragmented. And it's great because Moses in writing this captures the exact essence of what Rebecca is saying. But if, if this is so, then why? But, uh, can't even get a full sentence out. Why? Because every time she tries, one of the twins goes, <laughs> they're struggling. She's, oh, this is painful. What, what's going on here? Isaac prayed for pregnancy, not for this. Lord, what's happening to me? I, I was barren, you smiled on me. Now I'm pregnant. Are you frowning? What's taking place? I love what Rebecca does. She doesn't complain. She doesn't grumble. She, she just kind of throws out, if so, why then I? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So Rebecca prays. Rebecca, who, by the way, came out of a pagan background, like Abraham had before, but not like Isaac. Isaac was raised in a household of faith. And they go back and they get Rebecca, the servant does, brings this one-time pagan into the family of faith. Great picture for the bride coming out of paganism and into faith. But here she is now, and she's praying like Isaac. This, this couple, take it to God. This is a couple who knows who to seek. And as I sat there at lunch with the young couple on Sunday, that was the point. Seek God together. Don't quit praying. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, listen, the best way for a marriage to grow strong is for the marital couple to pray without ceasing. Pray for each other. Pray for the Lord's presence in your one flesh union. Just pray. Well, Isaac and Rebecca pray, and verse 23, the Lord said to her, the Lord speaks now to Rebecca, Yahweh said to her, two nations are in your womb. Well, that's great. <laughs> that's a lot of people, Lord. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first, first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, Esau which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Yaakov, heel holder or heel catcher. And Isaac was 60 years old when 
she gave birth to them. It's a great story. Harry and the heel catcher. <laughs> and I'm gonna save it for Sunday because there are some things that I, we gotta talk about. We don't have time for it tonight. But, but listen, there's something else I wanna talk about tonight before we're done that I will not have time to cover on Sunday. So listen really closely in this whole story of Esau, Harry, and Yaakov, heel catcher. Jacob will bypass Esau. Now, if you've gone to church at all or you know anything of the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that's gonna happen. You know that's, the, the, that's what's coming. Jacob will bypass Esau. First, first, Jacob is gonna buy out the birthright. Esau will sell it to him. Then he'll bamboozle his father Isaac to get the blessing of the firstborn, even though he's not. But note this, they come out almost at the same time. They're duking it out to see who's gonna be born first as it is. And then as Esau comes out, <laughs> it's so funny to me. Here's Jacob going, no, me, it's me, it's gotta be me. Pulling at his heel, just weird. I love the Bible. And these two come out, but, but Jacob bypasses, the, the younger bypasses the older, and God called it. And that's what's so interesting, the underlying message of this story. And by the way, when we get to this on Sunday, I'm gonna give you a perspective that I'm just coming to myself. It is one that is different than any perspective I've ever had of Jacob. And I think it's right. We'll test it together on Sunday. But this wasn't just Jacob decides to rip off his brother, steal the birthright, and take off. Wily, crafty deceiver. No. This was God's call. He saw it happen. The older shall serve the younger. Even though the age difference is literally seconds, the older, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. Now, you could see this as a broader prophecy. It's a prophecy, obviously, of the Israelites and the Edomites, the Edomites who would come out of Esau. Edom means red, and we'll see how that nickname of Esau then applies to the people of Edom, the Edomites, and you have the Israelites, and the Israelites did dominate the Edomites, and the Israelites were stronger than the Edomites, even are stronger to this very day. But it's not just prophetic here of Israel and Edom the younger and the older, the older serving the younger. No, it's more than that. It was predetermined. Now listen closely, because I'm not a Calvinist. This was predecided. This was, I'm gonna say it, predestined. Turn over to Malachi chapter one. The prophet Malachi. I want you all to turn there and see this before we finish tonight. It's remarkable because what, what the Lord says through the prophet Malachi is really kind of faith-shaking. It, it's strange. It, it's, it's hard to work out. Now, the book of Malachi, as you're turning there, this prophecy, it comes to a people who at this point are unaware of how far they have strayed from the Lord unaware of the love of God, denying God, kind of heading off in their own direction. Their marriages are messes. Their priesthood is corrupt. They're not good with their money, keeping it all to themselves. It's, it's a, a lot of problems going on, and this is about 420 years 
before Jesus would come. This is the last communication of God through a prophet to Israel until John the Baptist 420 years later. Listen to how it begins. Book of Malachi, chapter one, verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. This is some of the most bizarre among all of the Hebrew prophecies. Hey, God says, I loved Jacob. I hated Esau. And the casual reader would say, that's not fair. I thought God loved everyone. I thought God is love. And if God is love, therefore he, he must love all people. How could he say this? I have loved Jacob. I have hated Esau. First of all, don't miss the first four words of God in this final missive. I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. So, so the point of the beginning of the prophecy, he's speaking to Israel about his feelings for Israel, confirming to them, I love you. How have you loved us? That's their response. Husbands, can you imagine if your wife responded to you that way? I love you, sweetheart. How have you loved me today? <laughs> Vacuum's still in the closet. Have you seen the carpet? Dishes are still in the dishwasher. I love you. And this is Israel's response. I have loved you. How have you loved us? I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. And that's how. Well, that's great, Lord, that you loved Jacob, but you hated Esau? You made his mountains a desolation? He did. They're still a desolation to this day, right, Mary? Still a desolation. Take a little tour bus through Edom, southern Jordan. It's absolutely, nothing grows there. Stark, cold, dead mountains, dusty ground, dirt, barrenness, it's dry. And you read this and you say, well, okay, I don't understand. How can God love the one over the other? How can God choose Jacob to love and reject, reject Esau to hate? Okay, great question. Turn over to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine. Don't sprain a finger, we'll end here. Romans chapter nine, Paul picks this up and addresses and explains what this whole thing is about, this love of Jacob, and yet Esau I have hated. The, the, the younger will be served by the older, as God proclaims. So Romans chapter nine, verse one. I am telling the truth in Christ, Paul writes. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Paul's heartbroken over his own people. He goes on saying, I could wish that I myself were accursed. Separated from Christ. Actually, leave the word separated out. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. 
to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Now, let me stop there and just note this. He's not saying that those who are Israel today are not necessarily Israel. No, they still are. He's saying not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. So those who are descended from Israel are still children of the promise. They're still heirs. There's still a promise held out for them for the day that they come to Jesus in faith. But he says not all are Israel. Nor are they all children, verse seven, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Okay, so that means that the line doesn't just go back to Abraham, it goes Abraham through Isaac. Here's the line. So it's not through Ishmael, it's not by Keturah, and it's not gonna be Esau either. Through Isaac. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, and note this, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Malachi chapter one, verse two. Why did God love Jacob and hate Esau, note that Paul makes it clear. It has nothing to do with who they were. It has nothing to do with what they would do, good or bad, because the love and the hate, the choice and the rejection happened before these two boys were born. So they didn't do anything to deserve it, either to deserve the love or to deserve the hate. That choice came down and was prophesied, and then they were born. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So Paul, now having us hook, line, and sinker, because we're all hanging in here going, this just sounds so unfair. No way, Paul. Listen, first of all, understand who we're talking about. It's God, who is never unjust, right? Right. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Skip down to verse 24. Whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Put those two verses together. It is God who has mercy, not to Jews only, but also to Gentiles. What's he saying? This is it. Here's the key. God who has mercy for Jew and Gentile alike. 
And the whole point is this. It is through the line of Isaac through Jacob, whom he had to love, Jacob, whom he chose, that salvation would come and spread out to the entire world in the person of Jesus Christ, which is why he loved Jacob. Wasn't Jacob the person? I'm sure Jacob at at, at times was lovable. I'm sure at times he was not lovable. He's not the point. It's his lineage. It's his place in the line. What I would call this is the toldot of salvation. That the salvation is the point. God's choice to move through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a Jew in a world filled with Gentiles to bring salvation to all of the Jacobs and Esau's alike. That he had to love Jacob, he had to choose Jacob so salvation could spread out to everyone that we could choose to receive it. That's the point. That's the love of God for Jacob not based on who Jacob is or what he did, but based on the fact that through Jacob, God would then be able to show mercy to all people who believe, whether they come from the line of Jacob or Esau. Some of the deepest, most passionate believers in the world today could probably draw lineage all the way back to Esau. Are they hated by God? No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, the depth of the riches, Paul says, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways, Romans eleven thirty three. And so we see right here at the outset of this amazing, fascinating story of Jacob and Esau, of Harry and the heel catcher, we see the mercy of God at play. We see the love of God at work, not just for a man, but for all humanity. Got it? Does that make sense? We understand? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us tonight and for that that information, that understanding, that revelation that your love of Jacob was a love that your covenant would succeed and that Jesus would come into the world. Your love of Jacob, Lord, provided your love for me and for everybody in the room here tonight and for everybody who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, Jew, Gentile, makes no difference. Slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ Jesus, as your word says. That's awesome, Lord. I pray we would be people who receive that love, walk in that love, pray in that love, and continue in that love, Lord, that we might, like Abraham, come to the end of life satisfied, a ripe old age, or even a ripe young, just ripe, Lord, that we might be ripe as as bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And Father, that we would be gathered to our people, the people of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray this, whether the rapture happens or death takes me, whichever one comes first, I simply want to be gathered to you. And our desire is to live for you. And oh Lord, we look forward, so forward to the kingdom, the kingdom that's coming, the promise, the guarantee. 
And I pray that you will give us a vision of that and a focus of that as you lead us forward by your grace, your mercy, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.